so good with money, weird flex, <laughs> that I'm not good. And here's why. I am a hoarder. I am selfish. I am greedy. I am unsatisfied. I am so constantly worried about tomorrow that I fail to live today and I fail to bless others with what has been given to me because I have to hold on so tightly. I am not good with money and I would refer to myself as a miser. And I had to look up that word because I thought it was a good word to use, but I didn't know the definition exactly. And so I read, I looked it up, and it says, A person who hoards wealth and spends as little as money as possible. Carlin, do you concur with that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm a miser, and it's not a new thing. In high school, I was so cheap that everybody else that went to the high school football game parked in the school parking lot like a normal person. They paid the $5. I parked over half a mile down the road and walked. In college, we had dining dollars, and you get $300 a semester in your funds, right, like because of your fees. Well, when I graduated, the university wrote me a check because I saved my dining dollars over the course of my years because I was so cheap. I lived in an apartment during college with, I don't know what's going on. I lived in an apartment during college Five guys in a three-bedroom, all right? The math isn't great on that, but the price was $189 a month in rent, all right? So it was not in the 60s. I was born in the 1900s, though. Um, when Carlin and I got engaged, I decided, since money was going to be tight, I was going to be quitting my job when we got married, and we were going to be living on one teacher's salary. And if you know anything about teacher income, it's not great. And so... Uh, I decided about four months before we got married, what we need to do, we're not living together, we're not cohabitating, we're not sleeping over, but we lived on a budget together. And so I would look over our finances and to make a plan to see our expected expenses and already began my hoarding onto her, all right? When we did get married, we worked a, uh, a summer job, both of us with college degrees. She has a master's degree, and we worked minimum wage outside in the heat at a YMCA day camp. All right, it was awful. We, the first three months of marriage, we didn't do Diet Cokes. Told you it would come back. Uh, we didn't do Diet Cokes. We ate peanut butter sandwiches. I think she put jelly on hers. Uh, no, I didn't even let us do that. Uh, we didn't have internet in our house. We didn't have smartphones, because this is 2010, 11. We didn't have internet, smartphones. We would drive to Barnes & Noble and sit in the parking lot to check our email once or twice a week. <laughs> Those are real stories. I mean, so as we have now started working two jobs and uh, income is a little higher than it was back in those days, um, I'm a little more lenient, but I still am super tight. And we have spent many of bad evenings at a Groupon restaurant. Uh, don't fall for it. They're just not good. There's a reason they're on Groupon. Uh, I'm looking for a deal for a savings anywhere I can because I am a miser. More worried about tomorrow that I fail and I miss today. And luckily, and the reason I'm bringing you in on this is I am not an expert in this. I'm not speaking to you from a place of I've got it all together I'm speaking you from a place of, here's what I've learned from Scripture, and I hope that you don't repeat my mistakes. 
Luckily, Scripture does talk about money, and it does teach us how we should live. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, he will begin talking about money, and he talks about, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth, right? Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. He says, no, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where the rust and all that doesn't destroy, where thieves don't break in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. This last week in our small group, we were looking at James, and he started talking about very similar things, right? About how don't invest in this world. And he says that the rust and all of that, that as it begins to tarnish and break down, it will actually be evidence against you. And that hit me hard this week, that my greed is evidence against me. My selfishness is evidence against me. But what does this mean? To have where our treasure is, there your heart will be. I have a few questions to ask you. Have you valued the items of this world over the creator of this world? Have you spent your life seeking to build, to secure, and to decorate your kingdom and forgetting the kingdom of God? Have you been so drawn into the lie that if you can reach this income level, if you can drive this car, be in this type of house, or live in this neighborhood, that life will then be good, that you will be content, that you will be happy. Jesus gets to the heart of it in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For you either love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he gets really into it. He says, I've been speaking theoretically, but this is the heart of it. You cannot love or you cannot serve God and money. But who are you serving? Have you bowed down to the God of income, to the idol of being paid more? Have you spent or are you choosing your major based on what you can make instead of your passions and your personal giftedness? Are you pursuing something because it creates security and safety or because this is where God has pushed you and is wanting you to go? Jesus will then jump into anxiety right after this, don't serve God in money. And he, you know, he talks about, hey, the birds of the air, the, the grass of the field, they're clothed, they're taken care of. But we're asking questions about how will I eat, where will I sleep, what will I be taken care of, will I be secure, will I have all that I want in this life? Jesus will have that interaction with the rich young ruler, and there's only one interaction in all the Bible where I think somebody was told to give up everything. And it was that guy. Not because Jesus was being mean to pick on this guy, but he knew his idol. He knew what was holding him back from following. And so he says, go and sell everything, give it away, get rid of your idol, tear it down, release it. And what happens? He walks away sorrowful, knowing that that was too much. Jesus then grabs his disciples and he says, it is more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven as it is for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle. And I think I get that mixed up every time, but you get the idea. And yet we have spent our life pursuing how to get rich. Ever since middle school, the idea is we need to make more money to get rich, to get paid. If I want to be cool, I would say get that bread, right? <laughs> Thanks, Jack, for the eye roll. 
Our whole life, I'm very Our whole life is spent. Can we make more? And yet Jesus says that pursuing income is going to be problematic in your following of me. And yet we say, whatever, we can handle it. I'm strong enough. We're the alcoholic who walks in and says, oh, I can hang out at the bar. That's no big deal, right? We say, oh, it's not going to be me. Yeah, for others it might be difficult, but I can make a lot of money and handle it, God. Don't worry about that. John Wesley has some great rules for us that is going to kind of be the centering thought. Wesley is the head of, uh, or the starter of kind of the Methodist church. And Carlin, they'll pop up repeatedly every time you press enter or next. But this first rule of wealth or income is this. Earn as much as you can. Now, he means ethically, okay? He means doing positive things. He means not doing it on the backs of those or withholding uh, money or funds that should be given away. This isn't selling things that might be lucrative, even though they're illegal. All right. So earn all that you can make as much as you can. And then a second rule is this save all that you can save all that you can. Now, Troy got on to me because I claim to be poor a lot. Um, and Troy got on to me. He said, Jordan, your savings accounts have savings accounts. All right. <laughs> Because that's what it once again tomorrow. All right, I'm always worried. The save all you can is not have a Roth IRA, though David Finney would encourage that. <laughs> the save all you can is not have your six month income set aside. That's a good thing to do. Ramsey's all for these things. What he means by save all you can is simplify your life. Do we really need that fourth streaming service? Do I really need that third chai latte this week? <laughs> Let me see. What's Danielle's, right? Like, should just keep going down the list. No, I'm just kidding. I kind of know you guys, right? Do I really need these things? Simplify your life. Are it... Our extravagance is dangerous. So he says, simplify your life. Finally, give all you can. And that's where we're going to kind of sit today. This idea of tithing. Is tithing the appropriate goal or standard for the church and for a Christian is the question we're asking this morning. Now, I've sat in giving, I've sat in money, but the question I really want us to leave with is, how do we handle tithing? Is it a church antique that we need to dust off and enjoy and experience the value? Or is there something different we need to be doing? So what is tithing? If you grew up in the church, you know tithing is 10%, right? You give 10% of your income. People debate for your post-tax. That's not what we're sitting here to talk about right now. But 10%. Now, it comes from the Old Testament, all right? They would tithe. They would tithe of their uh, produce. Whatever they made in the fields, they would then tithe. It was great because it took care of the priests who don't have land. They're busy working in the tabernacle in the temple. So it took care of them. It took care of the poor. So it was kind of a like a welfare system for the good of those that could not provide for themselves. It took care of them. And it took care of the foreigner and the sojourner. In a sense, the tithe of the people became the national tax that then was used to take care of people. It also paid for the religious holidays as well. There's some more into it, but that's kind of the logic of tithe. Now, the tithe was a commanded thing. In Leviticus, you can find that. In Numbers and in Deuteronomy, you will see the tithe. 
But here's the issue. Once we turn over to the New Testament, the only real places that I see tithe mentioned is one time Jesus is getting on to the Pharisees because they're so consumed with tithing the exact amount of their herbs, but they're missing the weightier matters of justice, faithfulness, and mercy. And so we don't see tithe throughout the New Testament. And here I want you to understand this clearly, and then we will build on it more fully. Tithing is biblical, but I don't think, and we're going to explain this, that it is the best standard for the Christian, the New Testament, the new law follower of Jesus. Okay. Now, here's what I did not say. Giving is not required. Okay. Giving of all of us is a mandated and a God-honoring and a foundational principle of the Christian life. But we're going to sit into what does tithing look like and how that may be not the best standard for us. Now, hopefully you understand that. But I want to real quick build on why is giving important, and then we'll get into how is Jordan saying tithing's not good. Because that's what my dad told me, and that's what I should be doing. All right? So we'll get in there. Giving. Giving is throughout the Bible. I promise you that giving is a foundational principle because... Giving, we see in the very beginning of Genesis. Remember Cain and Abel? What did they get upset each other over? Because one gift was received and one gift was not. Giving has been a foundational principle for all worshipers and followers of God. Remember, Abel brings the best. He brings his first fruits, and Cain brings a gift. All right? And God accepts Abel's and rejects Cain's. In Leviticus, God clearly shows how is giving to take place. He talks about the sacrifices. He talks about the tithes. And giving is a function of what we are called to do. In Malachi, God gets really angry. He says, I would rather you not even show up in the temple if this is how you're going to act because you're giving, you're broken, you're giving, you're diseased, you're giving me your leftovers. He says, would you even offer that to your governor and yet you're offering that to your God? See, when we think of giving, we often think of, or we often act like we do with clothing drives or thrift stores. All right? Follow this example with me. We have a clothing drive going on right now throughout the month of April. Bring, be sure to bring something. And I'll challenge you to bring something nice. Because when we give, this is what we do. We go through our closet and we say, I haven't worn that in three years. And, we do, and yeah, it's kind of got some holes in it or some stains. Oh, yeah, throw it in the pile to give away. All right? That, that'll work. We give away what is of no value to us. This last summer, we were sorting through at Dean and Logan's house all the uh, clothes that were given. And about a third of them were, had to be thrown away because they were either inappropriate, um, which we have some good pictures from that, uh, or they have stains, holes, rips, tears, and all that. Why? Because we give what we no longer want. We don't give of our first fruits. We give of what is of no value. You, you, you debate in your closet, all right, this is my third choice rain jacket, but if this happens and this happens and then, well, I might need it because I have this one pair of pants and if I'm wearing those on this day and it's raining, then I might use this rain jacket. I'm just going to hold on to it. And we talk ourselves out of giving and being charitable because it might be helpful for us at some point. Now, how does that connect with us in giving? I think that's how we treat God. We give him our excess, not our best. We give him what's left over. We give him our sloppy seconds, what doesn't hurt us, 
doesn't hold us back, doesn't cause us any sacrifice. We just give what has no value. But that is not how we are called to give. Acts 4, and I'll briefly just kind of synopsis this. It's the early church in verse 32 through 36. Uh, The early church is operating, and it's operating really well because everyone had everything in common. Nothing belonged to myself. I was willing to share. Willing to share is the key there. It says in verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands and houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, feet, excuse me, and it was distributed to those that had needs. Now, that ends a chapter. The next chapter is chapter 5, and it tells the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And if you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, what do they do? They give. They sell their house, and they bring some to the apostles. But they say, hey, it's all of it. We're bringing you everything. And the apostles question them. They say, hey, is this it? Is this how much you sold it for? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Here you go. We're giving generously. And both of them die because of their lying and their deceitful giving. Giving matters, and we must give God the best. Now, we're going to ask three quick questions. We're doing okay. Um, Yeah, we're timing out okay. We're going to ask three quick questions. Why do we give, who should give, and what to give? All right? Why do we give? Quickly, because God first gave. We give because God first gave. It's the same logic as we love because God first loved us. We give because he has given abundantly and graciously to us beyond what we can imagine. We give back to the one who has given to us. Secondly, we give because God deserves our worship. He deserves our giving back. He should be exalted. He should be highly lifted up. He is the great, holy, awesome God. He deserves our giving. So we make sacrifices to him. Thirdly, God is our provider. What we have to understand is that we receive because he has graciously blessed us. The talents that you have to understand, DIFFEQ, are a blessing from God. The ability to lead or the personality to be able to handle this or to... To even be born into a family where it was a okay thing for you to get here is a blessing that we overlook. It's because God has provided abundantly already. And so we give because he's our provider. It is releasing control and saying, God, I believe you. I trust you. If you're going to take care of the birds and the grass, how much more will you take care of your image bearers? Finally, we give because God's kingdom is greater. We can build our kingdom. We can fortify it. We can decorate it, but God's kingdom is greater than ours. And so we give because we want to see his kingdom stretch, not ours. We want to see his kingdom grow, not ours. We want to see his kingdom expand, not ours. We give because God first gave, because he deserves our worship, because he is our provider, and because his kingdom is greater. So, who should give? Any income earner should be a giver. Any income earner that is a Christian should be a giver. So that means whether you make $20, $50, $500, or $5,000, you need to be giving. It's a place where you go, God first gave. God is my provider. God's kingdom is greater. Now, here is where, and let me explain my view on tithing. And this was developed this week. 
if I'm being completely honest. But I hold to it, and I think Scripture backs it up. All right? I've never really thought about it until this week. Fully. So, um, 10% is the standard. Here's the deal. There are some people, and some of you, who, because of work and the demands that are non-negotiables, rent, utilities, uh, a car to get places, gas to fill that car up and all that, at the end of the day, your required expenses may not allow you to give 10%, but you give 8% out of what you have and what you can give. In the normal church setting, you are made to feel poor. Not poor, excuse me. You're made to feel badly about yourself. You didn't meet the standard. See, you are giving sacrificially. You're giving all that you can, but you didn't meet the standard. And so the felt of the Christian is, I'm a failure. I gave 8%. See, that's not good. You are giving sacrificially. You are giving what you could, and yet you are made to feel like you can, like you're not good enough. Here's the other side of the coin. There are some of you who, when you graduate from here, you will make a lot of money. A lot of money. God will richly bless you and abundantly provide for you. And for you to give 10% will be like you just giving away that old t-shirt that you don't need. You won't ever fill it. I'll tell you our story. So 10% has been our role since we've been married. Okay? So ever since high school, I started working, I've always given 10% to the church. When we got married, I told you, we were on a tight budget, but we gave 10%. It was hard. There were a lot of things we said no to because we said yes to giving to the church. All right? We gave. Then we moved to, uh, we moved to Atlanta, and I got a job. So now we have two incomes. All right? Our rent only went up a very small amount. We had better insurance. We had... You know, we paid off a car. We had a lot less expenses. But our giving stayed the same, 10%. Now, the the numbers went up on that 10% because we had more income, but still, it was the same. Here's what I've realized. During that season, I was giving 10% and feeling good about myself. I was checking the box of holiness. But I could have given 20% to the church without feeling it. We could have given way more than we were without ever (laughs) noticing it leaving. But we didn't. And here's the deal. If we continue holding tithing as the rule or the standard, we're going to unnecessarily burden the poor, and we're going to give an easy way out to the rich. I am calling you not to create an idea of... um, 10% as your standard. I am calling you to look at your life and to ask the question, how can I give sacrificially? How can I give to the church in a sacrificial way? Where am I getting that from? Mark 12, 41. Jesus is outside the temple watching people giving. And he sees these people giving And it says that they were putting in large sums in verse 41. Rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, 
has put in everything that she has. Eugene Peterson translates it this way. All the others gave what they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly of what she couldn't afford. They gave of what they wouldn't miss. She gave extravagantly of what she couldn't afford. This idea of giving is, is touchy and tedious. It's hard to figure out. But I, and I, I'm just, I'll tell you, right now, the church, what we pay to church this year, I mean, this month, is 10%. Okay? Because as I look at our life and with moving here and daycare going up, pretty expensive and all this, that is, it is causing us to say no to a lot of things we want to do because we're saying yes to writing this check to the church every single month. I am not against giving 10%. If you feel strongly about that, then you go for it. But I also want to encourage you to think, am I giving sacrificially? Am I giving in a way that is saying I am worshiping? Or am I giving out of excess? I taught or I shared with you Wesley's words. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I want to tell you his story as we close. So in a minute and a half. Wesley had gone one day to buy uh, a picture to hang in his house. He comes home, and it's in the winter time. and one of the chambermaids, so I'm assuming like a maid in his house, was there, and he said, hey, will you help me get this hung, get it out and all that. And as they're hanging it, he notices she's shivering because <clears throat> it's cold. He looks, and she's just wearing like a thin gown, like made out of linen. He reaches into his pocket to give her some money to say, hey, go and buy a coat. And he realizes that he gave his last coin to buy this picture. He says to himself, will thy master, meaning God, say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You have adorned your walls with money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. Yeah, I hope you're proud of yourself. You're hanging a picture on the wall and here she is shivering and going home. He said that really hit him. Once again, we have pictures at our house, all right? So I'm not like anti-pictures and all that. So just making sure. Yeah. So then he took into account his life. He added up all of his expenses, his rent, utilities. I guess he had utilities in 1731. Uh, He added up his fixed expenses and came up to 28 pounds. And he looked at his income. It was 30 pounds in a year. So he gave two pounds. That's all he could give. Is that 10%? No. But he gave it. The next year, he got a raise. 60 pounds. You know how much he lived on? 28 pounds. And he gave away 32 pounds. The next year, or three years later, he got another raise to 90 pounds. He's giving away 62 pounds a year, living on 28 He says this, the Christians, uh, uh, let me find it here. The Christians, when we increase in income, it's our standard of giving that should increase, not standard of living. See, most people spend, when they get more, they spend more. And there's a time to get bigger houses, there's a time to get newer cars and things like that. But if when we get income increases, if all it is is our standard of living is increasing and not our standard of giving, then I think we're missing that God is blessing us. 
So Wesley lived out what he preaches. Earn all you can. Save all you can. And give all you can. I think it's a great simple rules to remember and to live by. So let me pray.